Welcome. I'm Hala Abdel Noor, the presenter of Facilitate This, the Group Work Center podcast where we talk with facilitators about their craft with a focus on a different topic each episode. Facilitate This is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and goes out to listeners on the lands of First Nations people across Australia and beyond. Ever wondered if the right people are in the room when you're helping a group find its way through a tricky batch? How do you ensure the outcome reflects the diversity of the group and the range of views? This week, Ben Neal, consultant with community engagement specialist Kapia, talks to Jim about the importance of inclusion and gives us some tips on how to achieve it. Ben, some of the work that you do is obviously critically important to allow people to feel like they can contribute to whatever the topic it is that you're working on with them. To open that up, tell us a little bit about your work and how you approach it as a facilitator to ensure that people feel safe, welcome, and that they can contribute. Sure. Look, I guess I'll kind of go one step back, first of all. So from an engagement perspective, really, we as an organisation, and I would like to think community engagement in general is around giving people a voice and so that there are better decisions or better policies or better strategies that are developed by government. A key component in any engagement strategy typically is some form of facilitation. So whether that's, you know, currently online, it might be a focus group, it might be a workshop, it might be a big town hall meeting, it might be a drop-in space. So there's very much um, a strong focus on facilitation in in that kind of genre of work. I guess, you know, as a business, we feel that inclusion is incredibly important and removing the barriers to participation, so even getting someone to the space to be facilitated or to be in an environment where facilitation takes place is absolutely critical. So when we write a strategy or we identify a particular community or particular stakeholders within a particular project, so, you know, if we're working with TAFE, for example, that might be about students, it might be about teaching staff, it might be about admin staff, it might be about employers if they're running apprenticeships, etc. So we identify the stakeholders and then we start to think about what are potentially the barriers to participation. Like I said, that might be barriers to participation during a facilitated event or barriers to online engagement, for example. And we think about, so how can we best work to remove those? One of the key things I do at the moment when we're working with small focus groups is thinking about how can we make sure that individual is fully prepared and comfortable before they walk into the room. And I think sometimes that can be a kind of slightly overlooked area of facilitation where we really just focus on about what's going on in the room and how am I going to manage that space when when that thing happens. But especially with disadvantaged communities, I think it becomes much, much more important to try and identify those barriers prior to the session and do as much as you can to remove those. Can you give us an example of how you've been able to put this in place? Sure. So we're working on a project at the moment for Homes Victoria, which is a kind of new authority, effectively, the kind of the old housing commission they would be referred to. There's a 10-year affordable 
open social housing strategy that's being developed at the moment. And so we're working with cohorts, which I think is fair to describe as as some of our most vulnerable in our community. And I say this from a point where I grew up in public housing, so I'm very comfortable making this statement that there is a high level of disadvantage with that group. So working with current public housing residents, community housing residents, and also those people in need of social housing or community housing. So effectively people that are homeless and there's a big spectrum of what homelessness means. So uh, we're working with the partner agencies to identify individuals who may be uh, willing to participate in the focus groups. So with those partner agencies, we've developed a script. We make sure that the person that's having the initial conversation is very well briefed on what the topic is and what will happen. So let's say, Jim, you know, you get the phone call. They say, oh, Jim, you live in, uh, let's say you live in Broadmeadows. I've got this great thing. I reckon, you know, you've got a good view. You've got a, you've been a, a public housing tenant for 10 years. You know, we know that you're very vocal in terms of your opinions. I think it'd be great for you to attend this focus group and you get 50 bucks for your time. So key part there about valuing people's time from an engagement perspective. You know, we want people's opinions and so we regularly uh, offer some form of financial compensation. It's about putting value on their opinion. Sure. Just say Jim's used to being us because he is very vocal and will stand up and make a statement, but he's also a little bit cynical because he's yet to see outcomes that he has needed. Yeah. You know, where's this house that you're promising me? Those sure. sorts of things. What do you do in that situation? I'll run through that process, then we'll come back to the to this as a challenge. So let's say Jim says yes. He's still cynical, but he says yes. So that's his first point of recruitment. And then he comes to us. And so therefore, you know, we're about to run the focus group. He knows the date and the time. We make a phone call prior to the session. Hi, how you going, Jim? Heard about you. It sounds like you're an amazing person. You've got lots to share with us. I just want to run through the structure of the session. I'm going to tell you the questions that we're going to ask, the type of things that we want you to respond to. So you're starting to get into the mind of, right, when I get there, they're going to say to me, what would a perfect social housing system look like? What are some of the elements that really annoy me about the system currently that I might be able to communicate in this session? We talk about how the information is going to be used. And so in that first part of the conversation, we've developed a relationship with you, Jim. You've got a bit of an understanding in terms of the topics that we're going to cover. And then we start talking to you about barriers to participation. And I wouldn't be explicit like this in a conversation, but that might be around, you know, are there any literacy issues? How do you work in groups? Um, How are you going to get there? Like, is transport a barrier? Are you worried about parking? What, what is it that we can remove that would make you more comfortable to be there? Do you have childcare for your kids? Not sure that we'd be able to provide it, but we might be able to go and find somewhere that can. So making that person feel very, very comfortable. Ideally, at the end of that conversation, they've removed some of their cynicism. We've been explicit about how the information is going to be used. It informs part of a strategy. It's not going to lead to the door being painted red or a particular outcome. The outcome is the actual strategy. And there's a number of voices that will be heard in that strategy. That can be difficult, can't it, though? Because people can understand that you're the ones helping a government agency get some housing out. You're not the one building the housing. You're not the one with the money handing out the housing or the power to do those things. Is that bridge a difficult one to cross? You're doing what sounds like to me to be a good job in being inclusive. It's still, if someone's doubting that it's going to result in an outcome, 
won't that affect their willingness to participate in the first place or in what they say or do when they're there? Look, I think it does, but there's probably some more pressing things that potentially impact the way people participate, and they would be the kind of burning issues. So that might be about the level of input and the potential outcome from the conversation that you're having, or it might be that you live in public housing and your window's broken and it's been broken for six months and you're really pissed off that no one's bothered to come to repair it. So we have strategies in place to say, okay, any burning issues, maybe have a parking lot or we maybe have a process that says if you have a housing-related matter, there are no housing staff here. You can say whatever you like about the department or the agency that you're, that's housing you and I will record that information but I'm not going to invest 20 minutes having a conversation with you because it's a waste of your time and it's a waste of my time. Can I come back to the parking lot? It's a device that we use as facilitators quite frequently In my experience, it's great to have one. What we do have to ensure is that we come back at some stage and adequately deal with everything that we put in there and show people how we've done that. Can you talk about some of the things that you've done to ensure that happens? Yeah, so it very much depends on the scenario, but a technique that we're working with the uh, Office of the Chief Environmental Scientist at the moment is a project which is about reducing the impact of um, smoke in the Yarra Ranges. And um, what we that's a kind of controversial topic. There's lots of citizen science involved in that process. We know that there's going to be a lot of very technical, complex questions which we won't be able to answer in the session. So this will be a face-to-face session. So, you know, old school, we will have some butcher's paper on the wall and when something is asked, we will write it on the butcher's paper. So what that means is it's a very, very clear statement to everyone in the room that what's just been asked is recorded and you can all see it. So I can write that question up on the wall and I can say, Jim, have I got your question right? And you can say, yes. So as an individual, you feel quite comfortable that you've been heard. For me as a facilitator, I can say, Jim, there's not the expertise in the room. We're going to need some more time to get onto that. The first item in our agenda for our next session in that there's three sessions. The first item in each of those sessions, two and three, is reviewing the parking lot. So we make a very, very solid commitment in terms of how we'll respond. Typically, what will happen is we'll say, let's say there's five things in the parking lot. You might be able to answer three in the following session. There might be one question that is part of the agenda for the next session. And there may be one thing that you've not been able to answer and you might request that the client meets with that individual to work out something in further detail. So there's sometimes things that are brought up in those scenarios which are actually not relevant for the whole group and don't add value to that whole discussion. So you need to kind of be a little bit flexible with how you deal with it. But I guess name that up front and be really clear with people why you are answering things and why you're not answering things, but really make sure that that question is not just left hanging because what I found, I'm I'm sure you would be the same, Jim, is that if, if someone has a burning issue, if that's not brought out early, it will significantly impact the way that they can participate. Because they're thinking about that and not much else. They'll either be disengaged in the process or they'll start picking up the the virtual rocks and start throwing those at the process because they're like, no one's dealing with my broken window. This all comes back to feeling and being heard, yeah? Totally. And that's something that we as facilitators need to bear in mind, yeah? People need to feel heard. What happens in these groups when people do feel heard? 
Let's start from the positive. Sure. I would say from our perspective, what we end up with is better decisions being made. And so whether that's around, let's say, for example, you know, for me, this is not a project that I've worked on, but and controversial, but something like a level crossing removal, so sky rail, so where it's an elevated rail where the government have said, we're not going to ask you whether you want it. This is what we're going to do. We think it's the best solution. However, in terms of what happens underneath so the significant amount of open space that's created, we want to know from the community how that space should best be used. Caulfield to Dandenong, I think it's 60% of the final design came from inputs from community members, whether it was a skate park or a basketball court or particular plantings or the way that the cycle path and the other path was separated. There's a number of kind of things in there that may or may, or may not have been picked up from the design previously, but certainly community were able to come together and say as a community these are our priorities so for me that's one example and they can now see these facilities on the ground that's right and sure they're not going to be everybody's individual opinion is not going to be in there and I think that's part of the kind of uh, role as a facilitator is to be really really clear about negotiables and non-negotiables what's on the table what's not on the table and from a community engagement perspective that this is not about listening to one voice. It's not about listening to one voice in the room and it's not about listening to just one room full of voices. There are many inputs. Some of those are financial, some of those are policy. They might be about planning. They might be political. Like, let's name those things, but know that as a group that you've had input. And that talks about transparency. What you're doing there is you're setting up a process that is completely transparent and clear to all those that are involved. Another important consideration. So there's no wool being pulled over anyone's eyes here, yeah? Yeah. We talk about this quite a lot at Capia in terms of our responsibility to advocate, so to advocate for fairer outcomes. You know, we are we are pure community engagement consultancy. And so what that means is that in our reports to government and our recommendations to government or other clients, we can only ever reflect the information that's come from community. Sometimes we can make some observations as well, but we are able to advocate for, for kind of fairer outcomes and for outcomes that have come from the community and say to the client, this is really important. What your community is saying to you is of significant value and will make the project better, not just... Here's what a bunch of people said. Yes. Do with it whatever you want. This is great. I mean, you've explained really well a process whereby you think you can be as fair as possible and as inclusive as possible to the group in front of you. What happens then when you go back to the client who's employed you to do this consulting? How can you ensure that what people said is important to them gets an airing and is considered and is included at least in part in the outcome? That's a very, very tricky thing for us. And I think, you know, if I, if I kind of take my consulting hat on, off, sorry, like prior to, to being a consultant, I worked for a large charity, I worked for government, I worked for not-for-profits. And it did kind of stick in my head about, well, I'm only going to see a very small amount of a project. I'm not going to see it the whole way through. So it's definitely a challenge. But when I think it's in terms of what can we do, it's about the quality of report, 
that we write. It's about really clearly showing this kind of golden thread of engagement in terms of this was the broad conversation, this is how it was refined, and this is how we've developed, for example, some principles that could be used from a master planning perspective. So it's like these are the things that are the priority for a particular community. What a wonderful word, principles. Is that something that resonates with those that are hiring you to do this work? You know, we've got to get back to some basics, don't we? If we're to be authentic about a consulting process and a stakeholder engagement process, is that something that resonates? Yeah, 100%. And I mean, look, it does depend on the client. But again, you know, we're an established business who have a good reputation and our it's not so much that we tend to have to fight with our clients about our recommendations. So I can't name the site, but we did work on a inner city public housing estate where the intention was to, I guess, create a vision for what that potential community could look like. And what we put forward was a, a broad form of community engagement, which resulted in a set of principles. And, you know, I like the word principles and I like them in theory. The problem is they can be a bit bullshitty and a bit wishy-washy. And so, especially when you're working with community members, maybe who English is a second language or have low levels of literacy, having this kind of wanky term doesn't resonate. They don't know what it means. And so we were very explicit with the client and the community. It's not just about principles. It's about supporting actions that could help achieve the principle. Really clear on the language. We're not saying if Jim says there should be CCTV, that there will be CCTV. But if the principle is about a safe and secure community and a possible supporting action could be CCTV, okay. And we'll have 10 or 15 of those. So what that means is that document that then goes to the architects and the town planner, they're like, oh, it's not just six wishy-washy principles. I've also got a whole bunch of actions to look through and consider in my design. And that means, you know, in an ideal situation, when the master plan, so for a large housing estate, for example, you have a master plan which shows open space and housing and and how traffic movement occurs, you could say to the community, here is the master plan and I'll run through your principles and I'll run through your actions and I'll show you how I've embedded them. And the stuff that I've not done, you can ask me why, I would like to think that the architect or the town planner would say, we didn't do CCTV. However, what we've done, for example, is... To ensure your safety. To ensure your safety is that we put the uh, the sinks next to a window and that window overlooks the shared community space. And we reckon that at any given time, it's likely that there'll be four flats doing their dishes. And that's one of the examples in terms of inclusive visual. So I'm using that as a kind of, you know, very literal example. But that's the type of thing where... What I want from a community member that's come and shared their opinion with us, that they've seen you know, the kind of broad principles, they've seen them being narrowed down, they've seen these supporting actions, that when the master plan is presented to them, they're like, yeah, I can see, I can see where community's been listened to here. Some of it's not exactly what we said, but I can see where you've listened to us and where we've been able to influence the design. And that's the win that we want. So, Ben, look, it's fairly easy for us as two... Older white men who've been well-educated and have grown up with relative privilege to talk about inclusion, most of the people for whom this is a concern aren't like us. Tell us about how that plays out in the groups that you work with and how do you reflect the genuine concerns back of the people outside of our own cultural framework as white blokes? Mm, Yeah, look, it's tricky. I mean, I think... I think the first part, again, to step back around, 
that is, is around motivation. So I accept that I've got a lot of privilege. And, you know, growing up, I wouldn't have thought about that. You know, I grew up in public housing, in a high rise, single parent, meh. It wasn't particularly easy, but I'm white and I speak English and I went to school. I never went to university, but, you know, I've been able to blag my way through my career and, you know, have some kind of genuine skills in there. But I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility that given the position that I'm in, I need to do as much as possible from an inclusion perspective. And there are times when I feel quite awkward in terms of talking around inclusion because I'm not the cohort. And I guess an example I'd give you to kind of answer the question around how would I deal with that? So we often run kind of free training for our organisation for clients. They're called Learning Labs. And I ran one around inclusion. And again, I felt awkward around being, you know, in a group of 25 predominantly white people as me as a white male talking about inclusion and how bloody important it was. So what I did was kind of switch that up and have not just me talk about it. So I've got two different groups both amazing. So one is called the Himalo Project, which is up in Heidelberg. So they are a Somali-based organisation who work with the Somali community. And what absolutely fascinates about them for me is that this notion of they are Somalis engaging with the Somali community. And it's very, very rare that you hear from an engagement perspective around communities engaging with their own community. It's normally white men or white women talking about those poor people or those, you know, uh, people from from a different country. We had the Himalo project come and talk about what that experience was. So very, very engaging for the group from an educative uh, perspective. And then we had someone who is an absolute inspiration to me and someone that I feel very proud to have been a very small part of their journey. This is a young woman from Ascot Vale who we were working on a, a separate project there. We were working with the neighbourhood house and there was an interpreting course. And we said to the neighbourhood house, look, if there's any of your students who would like to assist us, the work we're doing is quite informal at the moment. And before they've finished, if they want to come and try themselves out and just kind of support us, then that would be great. So she came along with one other person, absolutely amazing, speaks five different languages. Uh, we booked her for a second session where we paid her. It was the first time she'd ever received paid employment. It was the first time she'd done interpreting on from an official perspective. I was dumbfounded when she was having a conversation in Amharic and Arabic to two separate people and English with me while I'm explaining something quite technical. Amazing woman. She then wrote to me two months later and said, Ben, I just want to say thank you so much for that opportunity. I've now received my accreditation and I'm working full time, but I don't think I would have been able to do it without that first opportunity and the faith that you showed in me. Now, that's very easy for me. And like I said, I'm only a very small part of her journey. But we invited her to the Learning Lab to talk about a little bit about her journey, but also the importance of interpreters and how you work with interpreters and how you can use them from a facilitation perspective. For me, that's a practical, very much a practical response. That's a great story. Yeah, it's a a fairly small thing for us to do. Amounts to a very big thing for people in their own lives and their own advancement. Yeah, and I can do. And I don't want to revel in that. Like I said, I was a very small part in that woman's journey, and she drove that herself. But it, it. it talks to my first point in that I am in a privileged position and I want to do make as much opportunity for others through my position. Magic moments. When we hit a sweet spot in group work and everything is humming along, 
magic happens. It's the power of groups. Capturing these moments lifts our spirits and eases our way to achieving our goals. Ben, I think you've got a magic moment for us. Yeah, look, it's it was probably a magic couple of hours, to be honest. So you know, apologies if I, if I go on. Look, we were working with uh, an organisation called GoTafe, which is a TAFE up in the northern area of Victoria. And we were working on a social justice charter and we had a process where we used uh, students to become our engagement champions. And the first part of that process was that we needed to run a training session with them, which was a bit of an induction because they were being paid. It was to talk about engagement, was to talk about social justice, and then to get them to design their own strategy. So a pretty compressed session with some really defined outcomes. Beginning of the session, this amazing person who's a student kind of stood up at the start and said, so Ben, are we going to do pronouns? We're doing pronouns on the on our labels. And we're like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that I ask. So, you know, we said to people, we, you know, request that you put your preferred pronoun on. And we did introductions and this amazing person stands up and they said, I'm Asperger's, so you might find me a little bit weird because I kind of stand up and talk about things. Uh, I'm also partially sighted and I'm transitioning. I'm like, wow, like, what a brave person to be able to say that and help us set the scene for the type of work that we're going to do in terms of developing a, a social justice charter. So we ran through some of the elements and, you know, again, this disparate kind of group of 20, um, 20 students. And towards the end, we were saying to them, okay, you need to design your own engagement activity and we want you to do that. And so we had this, we'd created this wonderful, wonderful environment where they were like, oh, Ben, can I do this? Or can I, could I have, could I have a barbecue? I'm like, mate, it's up to you. And the revelation of people being able to get the permission to do whatever they wanted through that process, you know, and I guess that was the kind of outcome to the session. But for me, the absolute magic moment was that that individual felt comfortable at the beginning of a session to ask us that question, that we fulfilled their request and that they were able to share that information so early on. And I think this kind of magic moment really affirms to me the process that I talked about previously in terms of making sure that people feel welcome and supported. It's one of the evaluation tools that we use. Did you feel welcomed and did you feel supported? Easy words, really easy words to understand, hard to do, but you know when it's happened to you. And I think, you know, if any magic moment starts and finishes with you feeling welcome and supported, you've absolutely nailed it. Thanks so much, Ben. That was a lovely story to finish with. You're welcome. It's uh, fantastic catching up, Jim. Cheers. Facilitate This is produced for the Group Work Centre by interviewer and showrunner Jim Buckle, audio engineer Lloyd Richards, consulting producer Justine McSweeney, supervising producer Mark Spencer, and myself, Hala Abdelnour. We welcome your feedback via email at podcast at groupwork.com.au. For details on our courses and services, visit our website, groupwork.com.au.